Spotify is going after part of Amazon's business, and the SEC is going after a certain type of stock trading. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined today by the Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course, Chris. Thanks for having me. We got some companies to get to, but we got to start with the SEC, which is a place yeah. we rarely start on this show. Uh, but on Wednesday, Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, proposed rule changes that could affect individual investors like you and me and the dozens of listeners. The plan would require trading firms to directly compete to execute trades from individual investors in an effort to increase competition. And this is all about an issue that we've heard about and talked about from time to time over the past couple of years, payment for order flow. Mm -hmm. This is where brokers like Robinhood and E-Trade and others are paid by wholesale market makers for orders. Gensler sort of put this out there, and it really starts this process that, uh, I, if I have the timing right, Andy, this is going to go through the summer. Um, eventually, official rule changes are going to be proposed, will be available for public comment for institutions and individuals to weigh in on. But based on what you've heard so far, what is your reaction to this? Well, Chris, this has been going on for about a year now, really since in the middle of the COVID pandemic, when so many individual investors got involved in the markets. And we love that. That's great. We love to see more and more market participants, especially individual investors who are investing the right way that we've been talking about for you know 25 plus years here at The Motley Fool, um, especially around a lot of the meme stocks, AMC and the likes. Um, where there were just concerns raised about, like, is this in the best interest of the individual investor? And so the SEC started talking about this payment for order flow, especially as more and more users started using the likes of Robinhood, which makes a bulk of their, of their revenues through payment of order flow. Chris, the role of the SEC really has a, a couple of purposes. It is to protect investors, maintain um, efficient markets, and help with capital formation. So this is an area that I fully expect the SEC to continue to push into. And Gary Gensler came out at a conference today, and the chairman of the SEC this week, and, and, and talked about that, and talked about um, having better disclosures, and do we get the best execution? Um, where is the transparency, the order-by-order -order comparisons um, among the the, the wholesalers, as you mentioned, the high-frequency traders like Virtu and Citadel and, and then the, the exchanges, and how is this all playing out? Because roughly about half of the trading now goes through the traditional exchanges, and the other half kind of goes through these, these wholesalers who provide liquidity to the market. That's their argument. We provide liquidity and this pricing that allows the likes of individual investors to receive zero commission trades here in the U.S. So there's a, there has been a benefit if you like that, you know, as long as you take it responsibly, as we talked about in the past. Just because I get free food at the buffet, I don't go, can't go there and just gorged in, to death. You have to be very careful about that. So this is a very nuanced issue, Chris. I think you're right. This will be this will be. Uh, we'll go on well through the summer. It should. It should. It is an important issue. It is something that we want to make sure is done in an open environment. That Gary Gensler and the SEC is open and communicative with all of the stakeholders and players in here. They have their Virtu has a lot on the line. Virtu and Citadel and these wholesalers, UBS, they have a lot of revenue at stake with this, Chris. So they obviously have a voice in here. They believe they are opening up 
um, the ability for individual investors to get the best pricing. There are some questions about that. Obviously, the SEC has some questions there too. So it's an area that you want the SEC to focus. We just want to make sure it's done in a transparent, open environment so individual investors who are participants in the marketplace can understand the pros and cons to have a voice. If these rule changes go through, if 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 is there a version of these changes that forces a company like Robinhood to change their business model? Because as you said, right now, it's an attractive business model uh, proposition for new, particularly younger investors. Like, hey, you can trade for free. And uh, there's a version of the future whereby Robinhood, Ameritrade, which is uh, the um, online broker I've been using for more than 20 years, E-Trade and others may have to essentially change course and say, all right, if we're not going to get paid by the market makers, we got to get paid by someone. And guess what? We're, we're going away from free trading to, you're going to have to pay us a couple of bucks every time you execute a trade. Yeah, 100%, Chris, for the likes of Robin, especially, which, you know, they, they and, and you start to see as they start to think about different ways to monetize their unit base. Charles Schwab, which which had, had um, made the acquisition of Ameritrade, right? Ameritrade, I think it is. Um, and uh, Charles Schwab gets paid for payment of order for flow, but Charles Schwab has a very robust large business that provides lots of other different services. So that, that kind of market place um, platform of a Charles Schwab is far more attractive to me than the likes of Robinhood, which you just really do have these big risk factors that they can, their business model, same thing with Virtu and Citadel, can really be disrupted by some regulatory changes with the SEC. Even if it is in the best interest of individual investors, that can really um, affect these businesses. Now, the key thing, Chris, is because there's so much activity goes on with electronic trading nowadays, with the dark pools, with the, 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 the wholesalers, the high-frequency traders, individual investors, global traders, that kind of thing. We just want to make sure that the SEC is thoughtful about this. Like you said, has the opportunity to make sure they take in all the opinions because we, we want that that competitive marketplace when we are buying and selling our orders for all different securities, by the way, because what Virtu and the others will say is that they provide a lot of the liquidity for, for, for small um, uh, liquidity stocks and other asset classes that there, if there was an an open market, there wouldn't be liquidity for that. And who takes that on? So, so they, they have a very clear understanding of where they provide the values. So we want to make sure that's known. Um, <clears throat> and make sure that individual investors are truly going to be benefiting from this. That might mean that we end up paying a little bit more. We actually pay something for our trades, um, and that would have to be uh, factored into into the calculus because um, because certainly the the zero commission trading that has been been um, implemented in the last couple of years has has been a very attractive component to the U.S. Uh, markets, and and you want to make sure the U.S. markets remain as competitive and open as pros- as possible um, with with any regulatory chain change that may come down from the SEC. All right, we'll keep our eyes on this throughout the summer and into the fall. Let's get to a couple of companies making headlines. Five Below had mixed results in the first quarter. The discount retailers' profits were a little higher than expected. Revenue was a little lower. Tipping the balance in terms of what the stock is doing today is the fact that Five Below cut their full-year guidance. This is historically a good operator that really seems to have struggled over the past year relative to competitors like 
Dollar Tree, Dollar General, and even Walmart. Chris, I'd actually say it's probably put it in the great operator. I mean, their their uh, uh, revenues have grown on an average basis of more than 23% over the last five years. Um, earnings per share, almost 30%, about 29%. Um, a very high operating margin of 12 to 13% range, you know, for a retailer, that's very good. Um, and it's always ha- it's always traded at a premium price. The stock is, and it still it still kind of does, um, especially as um, um, uh, just thinking about its marketplace um, today. But as you mentioned, it was a little bit mixed. With all the other retailers, Chris, we're looking at inventory levels, and their inventory per stale per store, sorry, was up 37% this quarter. It was up 20% just on a unit basis. That kind of gets into even for five below gets into the inflationary changes there. Um, their sales and uh, their SGNA sales general administration um, costs were up um, by 2.8% this quarter, um, and that was really Chris uh, relative to sales, and that was um, that that margin difference, uh, and that was on higher rate wages, increased marketing, fixed costs, and there's a lot of focus on the cost for these retailers because when you do have relatively thin margins. All those costs really, really add up. But I think, Chris, as you mentioned, the the concern on the stock side, and what investors are seeing is is some of the concern on the com- on the comp store growth, the comparable store growth for the quarter coming up. You mentioned um, the comp growth now expected to be somewhere in the minus two percent to minus five percent, and for the year flat to minus two percent. I think most of the marketplace was expecting positive uh, on on those movement movements. So the fact that Joel Anderson and his team at Five Below, which have been really great executors, as you mentioned, said this environment is going to be a challenge for us. And consumers, we think we're on the right side with their inventories. They talked about that. But it is a challenging environment for consumers. I think especially at that discount level side, when when you know um, those who make less than $50,000 in household income, $75,000, you know, the, in, the inflation numbers and the, what, what that does to the, to the cost structure of a household really adds up. It's interesting when you think about what Target did earlier this week in terms of dealing with their own inventory challenges. Um, it really looks like they are trying to clear the decks uh, over yeah. the next, call it six weeks or so, so they are as ready as possible for the back-to-school shopping season. You think Five Below is in sort of that same situation? Not not that they've had the inventory issues um, that Target has had, and certainly the stock didn't take the hit that uh, Target stock took. Um, but I, it, you know, it's one of those moves by Cornell and his team that made me wonder: like, is everybody going to be doing this in the retail space? Chris, I think that's exactly why Joel Anderson mentioned in the press release said we are well positioned from an inventory standpoint. Standpoint with improved in-stocks and accelerated receipts for summer and back to school. So I think that was Joel trying to get ahead <laughs> of what say, Brian Hey, look, with. we're not Target. Exactly. <laughs> for whatever you think in of so us. Many, in so many words, I think that was I think that was there to get that out front. I mean, the stock's down 34% this year, Chris. So so it has been a real struggle for Five Below. And I think that's mostly because of, of concerns around the, the changing consumer behavior. But I think you're right. I think... Inventory is such a big issue with all retailers nowadays that they were very upfront and wanted to get that out right away. Before I let you go, Spotify had an Investor Day event yesterday. Uh, CEO Daniel Eck outlined Spotify's plans for the future, um, including goals of a billion listeners by 2030, $100 billion in annual revenue, uh, gross margins of 40%. 
what stood out to you? Because I mean, this is for a a business that, if you look at the stock, has really kind of struggled uh, yeah. over the past year or so. Um, these are some pretty audacious goals. Well, Chris, and that just to put some context. They did ten billion in revenue last year, so you're talking about a ten times growth in revenue by 2030, and that's about an annualized percentage in the high 20s, almost 30%. So, so you are talking about some very healthy, robust growth numbers. You know, for a company that's very well known, they have more than 180 million um, um, users on the Spotify plat platform. So there needs to be continued um, growth and innovation for Spotify. And I think this is what has frustrated investors. We're not seeing, maybe not seeing it. And I think they wanted to have this meeting. Dan Eck, who owns seven percent of the company, is worth more than one and a half billion dollars. Um, and built this company from the from the ground up. Really wanted to talk a lot about that, especially with all of just it has been such in the news. I mean, how much money they have spent on podcasts over a billion dollars since 2019. You know, they think podcasts can be a very large business going forward. The real interesting push toward audiobooks, Chris, which you know. Amazon and Audible.com dominate that market. By some estimates, they have almost 50% of the market. It's not a it's not a huge market, but it's growing maybe 20% per year. You know, some are probably in the $10 billion range from the market size. Um, they also talked, so that was one part, Chris, and then a lot of talk around profitability. You mentioned the gross margins getting up to that 40% level. You know, they're in the 20 high 20% level now, Chris. So so Dan Eck and his team really laid out of uh, uh, an expectation. Now it is very very long term, but an expectation of what Spotify can be. But the proof is really in the pudding. Obviously, investors over the last year haven't been buying into it and have really been concerned about both the cost side and whether they can really truly compete and be a lasting business, lasting, thriving business. And Dan Eck, in this um, this meeting with investors, wanted to get that out and be very clear that he said, we can be and we are not, quote, a bad business. Which is, uh, you know... You got to feel a little bad for any CEO who has to stand up in front of investors <laughs> and say those words out loud. Um, the audiobook Gosh, yes. thing, I think that's going to be worth watching because you know, they, uh, one of their executives made the comment like, "Look, there's one major player, you know, as you said, Andy. You know, it's Audible, which is owned by yeah. Amazon, um, and it'll be interesting to see what route Spotify." decides to to go down in terms of making that as accessible as possible because Audible wants people to subscribe. That's really what they've pushed. That's that's how their business model has shifted over time as opposed to, you know, in the early days of Audible, it was like getting people just buying one audiobook at a time. They really want the yep. subscription. And Spotify is a business built on subscriptions. So it'll be interesting to see if they enable people to essentially just buy a single audiobook on their platform or if the only option people have is a monthly subscription, an annual subscription, and maybe they try and undercut Audible on price. I mean, Chris, if you think about just the listening habits that we that we that we have, other than than video where you might be um, not watching but listening to it, you really have it's it's audiobooks, it's music, it's podcasts. Those are probably the three big giant areas. Um, just that I can kind of think off the top of my head. Maybe there's some other ones, but those are the big ones. And and what what Eck and his team are, are laying out is like we're going to be players in all of this space. There's one big player in in audiobooks to um, boost competition and a marketplace. We want to go into that. We're, we can be very aggressive in that. We can be very profitable. We think we can be very profitable in that. Um, that 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 
as well as with with music, which they're expecting the the the, the profitability picture to increase, and podcasts too, which they've, as I mentioned earlier, they've made a lot of investment in. But they think over the next couple of years, that can flip to gross margin profitable for them and, and contribute to the to the improving bottom line for Spotify. But clearly, there's a lot to prove with Spotify, looking at the stock price, looking at the valuation, the size of the business, um, and the competitive landscape out there. Um, they are not the only ones doing that. You just see what Apple continues to do with their innovations, Chris, and what they did just this week with Buy Now, Pay Later, and the effect that it has had on some of those other Buy Now, Pay Later uh, comp- uh, uh, competitors out there. Um, that is always sitting out there. Them and Amazon for the likes of Spotify. That is going to be a very tough competitive space for them to, to succeed in. Andy Cross, really appreciate your time. Awesome, Chris. Thank you for having me. Up next, Dieter Willard and Jason Hall continue their conversation from yesterday's episode about home builders, including key metrics to watch and a few stock ideas. Jason, so we looked a little bit at some of the overarching trends in our last conversation. So now let's talk about some of the things that we look for as investors when we're talking about home building. You and I have talked before about the three L's, which is land, labor, and lumber, sort of lumber and other materials costs. Land, definitely we've seen more home builders getting more land, having land both that they own and on option. Labor, you mentioned it earlier. We've got that labor issue that that continues. We've had a, a construction worker shortage long before COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And lumber, lumber was really high last year, moderated this year, but now we've got things like gypsum and steel and concrete going up. Right. <laughs> so as an investor, you're looking at these three factors and kind of seeing how home builders can respond to these, right? Yeah, and per- persistent low interest rates and... Double-digit price increases um, have cer- have certainly been great to cure um, those those rising costs. You know, we're ta- we've talked about margins for these um, home builders are some of the highest levels we've we've seen um, in a very very long time. Um, and honestly, I think we're going to start seeing those margins get squeezed. And as an investor, how can you kind of see the cadence? And it's different from every builder, right? Because Home building is housing is very local, right? We talk about it on a national or regional basis a lot, but it is very local. And for these home builders, it's the markets that they're in where you have to understand it. And I think looking at their their quarterly reports and their gross margins, if you see gross margins start to decline, the first thing you need to look at is average selling price. Okay, so what's going on with the price they're real, realizing for the house, right? And if margins are coming down and selling prices quarter over quarter, particularly, are starting to come down. Well, there's part of your answer, right? You also need to start thinking about those earnings calls and what is management talking about. They love to talk about their labor situations, their land inventory situations, prices for materials. They will share that information. They will share that information uh, to some degree of depth, depending on the company and the management team. So read what they. Don't just read what they said this quarter. Go back and read last quarter. What did they say last quarter? And are are they moving the goalpost a little bit? Or is there some consistency in the story that they're talking about, the challenges they faced last quarter, and here's what we're trying to do to work on it? And did they say, okay, here's here's how we're moving forward on that? Or is it like, well, this is the other thing that's happening, right? So I think that's a really useful way to look at it. Um, 
but I think the big thing here is that these are going to continue to be pressures, even on material costs, right? The, the producer price index for wood, this is indexed to back the, the 80s, it's in the 300s, right? It's, it's, and 100 would be the same price against that, that index. Um, and your supply is starting to get better, but what's happened? Oil's $115 a barrel, and you got to put this stuff on, on trucks, and you got to put it on um, trains, and all of those, in, in the energy costs for the mill to make this stuff has gone up. So there are persistent pressures, I think, um, on costs that builders are going to continue to be dealing with. And now with higher interest rates, buyers are going to be much more price conscious of the house because they're shopping a payment in a lot of cases. And guess what? If their interest rate's gone up, they can't afford as much house as they could six months ago. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as we wrap up, um, I want to take a look at some home builders. But the other thing I want to say that I look for now, and I think this makes this particular uh, cycle different than the last one, is we've got another thing happening, which is optionality in home builders. And that is that there's a single family rental market that didn't exist during the great financial crisis. We've got massive companies like Invitation Homes. There are tons of private companies with portfolios with thousands of single family rentals. That I think is something that is a positive thing for home builders. So with that kind of in mind and thinking about optionality, which of the home builders do you like best? So I, I'm, I'm a growth focused investor and my favorites tend to be the smaller um, builders and the ones that have kind of positioned themselves where there is the most demand. And I think it's going to be the most persistent demand. Um, and I think the biggest area where there's the most persistent demand is going to be um, entry-level housing. So that first house um, or move up, like the first move up, right? Um, and I think the two that are probably best positioned um, that are relatively large um, are Meritage Homes, ticker MTH, and LGI Homes, ticker LGIH. And they really focus a lot on that entry-level property. The vast majority of, of what they build is in that area. And they tend to be fixed designs, right? So you don't have a lot of customization here. They tend to be smaller. As a result, you get to build more units per acre. Less custom work means lower costs and faster builds. And that results in higher margins. This is one of those rare areas where the lower cost thing actually can result in higher gross margins, right? So they're both really good at that. The downside, you build more homes on spec, meaning spec, um, speculation. You don't have a buyer already lined up who's paid a deposit and is and, and you know is committed to to buying it, um, and and the risk there is um, if the cycle turns right. They also tend to own more of their land and don't use options as much as some of the um, other larger builders. Um, I'll talk about one in a minute. And again, that's a cycle risk because you've got more of your balance sheet tied up in an asset that if the cycle turns, it's going to be harder for you to sell. The worst thing is being a home builder with a bunch of half-completed homes and no buyer, and then a couple of months, the cycle turns, and you've got to finish these houses, you've got to try to find a buyer, you've got a bunch of land on your balance sheet, and, and there's risk there, right? There's risk. Um, the thing I like about Meritage and LGI is they both are pretty well capitalized, especially Meritage. It has an incredibly strong balance sheet. Um, and the, the valuations you're looking at single digit earnings multiples, like five times earnings or less, right? I think the market is giving us a good risk adjusted reward, um, opportunity with, with these companies for a temporary, that what I would see would be a temporary thing. If we do see a turn in the cycle, 
for durable businesses that would be able to get through that cycle and come out the other side in good position. Now, if you're if you're a little more risk averse as an investor, you're looking for a little more stability. Um, NVR, I think, is really interesting. And NVR, that's the ticker. Ryan Holmes is its biggest retail brand, um, but it's more it's more integrated, right? So this this they they have a finance business that they do. They make pretty good money through that. Now it's not a lot of risk with it. It's they do a lot of originations. Um, and they, they pioneered the use of options for land, right? Uh, meaning its balance sheet is tends to be less leveraged. It's probably the strongest in the energy in, in the industry, excuse me. Um, you won't get anything as close to a cheap valuation here, but you're paying up for a more stable business that I think can still be a wonderful, a wonderful investment. Again, I don't think these are trade opportunities. I think these are investments that you're looking at a multi-year horizon. Because there is uncertainty. The market's valuing them where they are because of the uncertainty, right? With the economy, rates going up, costs still very high, and the potential for the housing market to turn. I think if you have a multi-year time horizon and this willingness to kind of go through some of this potential turmoil, these valuations are going to prove to be wonderful, wonderful entry points. Yeah, definitely. I think people get a little scared off because NVR has a very high per share price and they, they, they don't, I don't think they're going to split, but it's a great business. And if you look at it over time, it, it has really done well for investors. Well, Jason, that was awesome. Um, I love talking to home builders with you. Thank you so Me much. Too. This was great. Thanks, Deidre. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.